One of the things that, uh, as we've been talking about Acts lately, that has stood out to me in conversations is this idea that there's a disconnect at times, or at least it feels that way, between the stories that happen in Acts and then the stories we get to share. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, it seems like God is doing amazing, incredible, moving, powerful kinds of things in Acts, and then sometimes we're like, just doesn't seem to show up as frequently here. Maybe we're not quite experiencing it. For example, the first part of our passage today, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> but the first, the first part, we just got done last week with Ananias and Sapphira. Or, uh, we talked about them two weeks ago. And then last week, talking about this idea of stewardship and how do I live my life. And, and uh, what, are, what am I doing with my talents, abilities, gifts, resources. And then this week, we start to shift into the middle part of Acts chapter 5, and we see this statement. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. I mean, you're... You're hearing amazing stuff. Multitudes of people are coming to know Jesus. And then it says, so, even so much so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and all were healed. I mean, you hear these stories. That people, I mean, the, the growth of the church was so profound that they were filling up their buildings. They had nowhere to go with it. People couldn't even, like, get near the apostles and their teaching. They, they brought the sick. They laid them just so that as people would walk past, as Peter or the apostles would walk past, the, the shadow of them might fall. And then you read that from all kinds of other villages, people would come into Jerusalem bringing their sick so that they might be able to be healed be taken care of, that they might hear the name of Jesus, that the truth of the gospel might be proclaimed. And we see these stories, and we go, man, why is that not happening today in the church? Or is it? I mean, that might be the better question. Is it happening today in the church? And I think we wrestle with that tension. Maybe I'm the only one that wrestles with that tension, but maybe you have as well, as we've been going through Acts, that you see all this and you wonder, is that still for today? Now hold that thought for a moment, because uh, I've got a quick confession to make, and it's a confession that uh, maybe some of you will also agree with my confession, but sometimes I suffer from Instagram envy. Does anyone know what that is? It's a, it's a real symptom. It's true. Instagram envy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, there's new reports coming out all the time and studies, scientific studies, based on the impact that Facebook or Instagram has on people. Okay? Here's one of them. Uh, from the, I know you guys probably read this a lot, but the Cyber Psychology, Behavior, and Social Networking magazine, February 2012, the article is titled this, They are happier and having better lives than I am. The impact of using Facebook on perceptions of others' lives. They say the studies are even more profound now with Instagram because... Images, as they say, are worth a thousand words, or images portray something that the rest of life maybe doesn't quite portray as well. And so you see these pictures and you begin to do social comparison. 
So I, w I went on uh, Instagram and I just picked a couple pictures. And so you see that and you're like, oh, wow, my friend's at the beach again. That's, that's really awesome. And then you go to the next one. I wonder where they're going this time. You know, and then you get the next photo and you're like, is that their backyard? You know, like, or are they on a hike or, you know, what? When I go to the zoo, the animals don't look like that. Like, I mean, you, you start feeling like, man, my life just doesn't compare. Like, you look at my pictures and it doesn't look anything like that. But see, what's interesting about Instagram is it's just these snapshots, right, of these moments of time. Maybe the person's out to eat and you're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Or maybe they went to this event or uh, you see them um, hanging out and they're, they're their kids look really cool, and everything about their life looks perfect and managed, and you're like, wow, like, man, that just is frustrating. But then the other day, I went on to my daughter's Instagram account. I'm flipping through the pictures, and I'm like, man, I wish I was a part of this family. <laughs> they, they, they look so, like, they're having fun. They look like they're doing some cool stuff. This, like, and then it dawned on me that we don't post the times when my kids are fighting. We don't. We don't post when the whole family's sick, vomiting. We don't post that. You don't post pictures of the car breaking down again, you know, and you're like, oh, crap. You don't post the expression on her face when a big bill comes in the mail. You know. You don't, uh, you don't see moments of my wife and I not in like with one another. I say in like because we want to always be in love, but sometimes we're not in like, right? That happens. And so you don't post any of those pictures. You don't see any of those moments. And the same is true in most of our stuff. We don't see that. And I think Instagram and Acts have a lot in common. Instagram has a lot in common with the book of Acts because I think the book of Acts is the stories of the church's Instagram. They're snapshots, moments. So like, here's 5,000 people that came to know Jesus, click, right? That's awesome. And then like, they go to another moment and they're like, this is where the church was selling everything they had and giving it to other people, click. And then Luke goes over here and is like, man, this is a story, like he just keeps going around taking these beautiful snapshots. He even takes snapshots of bad things that seem cool, like these are two people that died because they withheld from the community. And you're like... It's gory enough, but it's still kind of cool, and so it, it, it's, it makes the Instagram real anyway. And so you just see these moments, right? You just see these snapshots. And then the question I think we begin to ask, or should ask, is what about all the space between? What about all the space between those moments? Because, see, I think life happens in the space between. I think church happens in the space between. See, the church and the influence of the church is not always found in those highlight real moments. It's not found in those newsworthy expressions. At times, yes. But I think the true influence of the church is found in the moments that will never get posted. It's founded in the little conversations that happen. It's founded in the way someone responds the first interaction with someone who's in need. 
the way the church loves one another and supports one another. I mean, I don't think it's going to get posted in the church's history books that Zach had everyone move them in an hour and a half. Or that people get sponsored to work at ministries. Some of that just doesn't get posted. But it's all a part of the movement of the church. So the question is, what about all those spaces in between? Is the church of today living in the same way as the church then, in those moments that aren't quite newsworthy? And I think our passage from verse 17 through 42 really speaks into that. If you have your Bible, you can look at this. I'm not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to try to highlight what happens in chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. There's this section where the, the apostles are going out and they're, like, they're healing people, they're teaching, they're describing the gospel to any and everyone that they can. And the high priest, it says, is pretty ticked off. He's frustrated and he's angry. He calls all the apostles in. Then he says, you've been spreading these lies. We don't believe them. And you need to stop. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw you in jail. And they throw him in jail for the night. The plan is the next day that they're going to bring them before the council and try them. And so they throw him in jail. But that night an angel comes and releases them from jail and says to them, I want you to go back out to the temple and I want you to begin to preach again. So all of the apostles get up, walk out of the jail, walk to the temple, begin to teach and proclaim the gospel again. Then the high priest and all the Sanhedrin decide, okay, let's send for all the prisoners from the jail. They go there. Nobody's there. They hear that they're in the temple declaring truth again. So they bring them before the courts. Then they say, hey, listen, we told you to stop teaching. We told you to stop proclaiming. And you've ignored us. And the passage says that the apostles said, well, we must obey God rather than man. To which they grow extremely filled with rage, the text says, so much so that they want to kill them. Then a guy named uh, Gamaliel comes and he just says, hey, listen, if it's going to die, it's going to die. This whole thing will go by the wayside. Or if it's of God... It's going to be amazing, so you just need to let it play out and see what happens. So they take his advice, they bring the apostles in one last time, they beat them, they send them out, and they tell them, don't, don't preach anymore. And it says this, that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease pre- teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, throughout this passage of Scripture, there's many different themes or ideas or angles we could take to talk about it. But one of the more profound pieces, and kind of like the bottom line of this passage, is the disciples' response, or the apostles' response to suffering. They had a peculiar response. They were very much about, hey, we're not going to obey you, we're going to obey God. And then they get beat, and they rejoice. Now, that's not the typical response, I think, to the idea of suffering. Now, when you think of suffering, what are some words that come to your mind? Just shout them out. Words that come to mind when you think of suffering. Pain. Sorrow. Agony. What else? 
loneliness, injustice, defeat, say it again, powerless, alienation. Yeah, I mean, avoidance, affliction, this is bad, we don't want it. I mean, most of the terms we come up with really speak to the idea of it not being something I would rejoice about, right? That it being something that I, I want to avoid. In fact, I think the church's general response to the idea of suffering in today's culture, for sure, is the idea of avoid or endure. So when it comes to suffering, we want to avoid it. We want to figure out what the escape routes are. We want to seek comfort. We want to figure out how to get around it. We want words like flourish and thrive and enjoy, not suffer and pain and loneliness. So we avoid it. Or we endure it. We're just like, hey, I just got to get through this. I just need to persevere. I just got to just see if I can stick it out long enough that this suffering will go away. That's our general response. Not always, but for the most part. But what you see in the New Testament that I think is pretty fascinating is that the typical response or the understanding towards suffering is one of assuming and embracing. Assuming and embracing. Now you see this teaching all throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. The first one is this idea of assuming. You assume that suffering will happen. In Philippians it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. A little later on, Peter, who's talking in this particular passage, says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Assume it. There's this understanding that when you signed up, whether you knew this or not, to be a Christian, you also signed up to suffer. It was assumed. It was implied. It would happen. But it was also embraced throughout the New Testament. You see things like this. Here's the next passage. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Another passage says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. A little later on, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory God in that name. And then in our particular passage in Acts, it goes on to say that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So the question of, as I've been reading this text that keeps coming to mind is how do you move from a posture of avoiding or enduring to a place of assuming and embracing? Because it seems like that's the big contrast with the book of Acts and our culture, or the church then and the church today, a much different perspective of the idea of suffering. And what I want to suggest really briefly are two ideas, two ideas that move us from the one posture to the other, and that is this. The first one is that we have the right cause. You have to have the right cause to suffer for now, we talk about suffering quite a bit in general, normal, everyday terms. And we can even talk about it in a positive sense. 
Let me give you an example. Um, we'll use the idea of working out. When we work out, there's a general understanding, a general assumption by everybody that working out also equals some pain, some suffering, some hurt, right? We, I think most of us come into that understanding that when you work out or exercise your body, there will be some repercussion. We assume it, in fact. Here's what I mean by we assume it. We sign waivers before we start, okay? <laughs> Saying, if I die while participating in this activity, I will not hold you liable. We have to, for certain exercise routines, we have to consult physicians before beginning, right? We even have big signs on the treadmill. If at any point you experience shortness of breath while doing this, stop immediately and consult your physician. I ask myself the question every time I'm running. Who doesn't have shortness of breath, <laughs> right? Do I, I need to stop now. Quick, I'm done. But we assume... We assume that suffering will take place, but we also embrace it. Have you ever noticed that? We embrace it. Like we get done with a long workout and we're like, oh man, I'm so sore. And someone's like, yeah, but it's a good hurt. And you're like, okay, okay maybe, maybe, right? Or, or you, you know, call your buddy up and you're like, I can't even lift my arm to brush my teeth. And they're like, I know, that's awesome, way to go. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second. Wait a second, no, it's not supposed to work like that, but it does. See, we know that it's assumed, and we know that we can also embrace it. But why is it not the case when it comes to suffering for the name of Jesus? It seems like with workouts we go, yeah, well, that's implied, and it's assumed, and it, it's actually a good hurt. But then we go, hey, would you suffer for the name of Jesus? And we're like, I'll take a pass. Where, where, can, is there an escape route? Is there some way I can get out of this? But what you notice in the text is the, the key, I think, is the cause. The apostles suffered because they were obedient to a countercultural way of being. They chose to obey God rather than man. They had this way of living that said, here's what the culture is assuming. Here's what the culture is pushing. Here's what we're being told to do, and this is what we will do. It's a complete change. Now, I think a lot of times in Christianity, we kind of wonder what are the things we're supposed to suffer about. Are we supposed to suffer, be made fun of because we dress weird or we listen to stupid music or we do all these other things that are supposed to be Christian? And No. I think the book of Acts reveals the very things that they were suffering for. Here's a list. Taking care of the needy or helping the poor healing the lame, looking after the widows, selling possessions and giving, having all things in common. They were basically doing, as Micah says, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. That They realized they were giving their lives to something, to a mission, to a calling, to a group of people that were about something. And I wonder sometimes if maybe the reason we as the church today aren't willing to suffer for the name of Jesus is because we really haven't bought into the cause. We don't really believe that the mission of Jesus is captivating enough. That the idea of bringing shalom to our city, peace to these streets, is moving enough to cause us to be willing to suffer. 
Because I think the truth is we live in a culture that's affluent enough and uh, passive enough that we could probably skate through much of life without bearing a lot of consequences for being a follower of Jesus. We could probably do that. Unless we're actually engaged in the mission of God. And it's my belief that if we are, it's almost impossible to be unscathed. It's almost impossible to go through life without experiencing suffering at some point. If we're truly engaged in the mission of God. But sometimes, I think we even, instead of stepping into it, sometimes we even just step into the wrong things. You ever notice that maybe we take up the wrong causes at times? We're all about something that, eh, it's important, but it's not really necessarily part of bringing shalom to the world. I'll give you an example, and hopefully nobody is offended, but when I lived in Indiana, um, I remember receiving a bumper sticker from someone. He came up to me and he said, hey, I want to give you this bumper sticker. You can put it on your car. I said, what is it for? He said, well, we're trying to save the Ten Commandments. And I said, well, I wanted to say, I didn't know they were lost. And he he goes, no, at the courthouse, there's a Ten Commandment monument and they're thinking of removing it. And I said, okay, thank you. I took it. And what I wanted to say is, and I care why. Why does that matter to me? Because he said, listen, if you take this and you put it on your car, you're, it's, you know, people aren't going to like it. But, I mean, you can suffer for Jesus. This would be good. And I thought to myself, without saying it, because that would have probably not been very polite, I thought to myself, I don't, honestly, sir, I don't care about your Ten Commandment monument. What I care about is the ten migrant workers you drove past on the way to your monument. What I care about is the 10 boys and girls that live in the neighborhood and the projects that are across from your street and you will never drive through their neighborhood. You know what I care about? What I care about is the 10 men at the mission that keep looking for a job and they keep coming to your business and your business is the one that keeps telling them no. That's what I care about. But hey, thanks, I'll take your bumper sticker anyway. That's, that's what I felt like saying, right? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about those things, but what I am saying is part of bringing the kingdom of God to bear in real and practical ways on earth will result in suffering. Not suffering because you got a bumper sticker and people are like, yeah, that's a stupid sticker. Not suffering because you're chasing after the wrong things. I think it's suffering because when you engage in the things of Jesus, when you're about seeing change happen in a city and in lives, You will experience tiredness. You will have emotional fatigue. You will be frustrated. There will be times where you're bitter at the system. There will be times where you have a holy rage going, this is not okay. This is not the way it's supposed to be. That, I think, is suffering. That is what it means to take up the name of Jesus and to suffer and to feel the weight of it. I remember one of the times that I have been most proud to be a part of this community was a couple years ago. We, we five years ago started a nonprofit that works with refugees in the city. But about a year or two after that got started, one of the refugees that had been a part of our community for a while, he uh, got in trouble with the law. He did something, 
and uh, it was a total misunderstanding by people involved, and he was wrongly accused for something that he did not do. And I remember the, the weight of that. I remember us beginning to talk about it as a community, beginning to pray about it. And on one particular time, we got up front and we said, hey, listen, our brother, our friend is in this situation, and he has a court trial hearing on Monday at this time at the courthouse, and it would be great if we showed up and sat with him. Now, some of you will have to get off work. Some of you will have to find sitters. Some of you will have to take your kids out of school. Some of you will have to do whatever it takes. But this is, this is important. This guy could be locked away for years for something he did not do. And I remember I showed up to the courthouse that morning. And I had my wife and I had my kids. And I thought, Man, I, wonder, I wonder how many people will be here. I wonder if anyone will show. I wonder will be willing to suffer with someone. And I remember like, going through the metal detector, and then I just person after person after person after person. So much so that the entire courtroom, every seat was filled. Then the entire third floor of the courthouse seats all the way down both sides. People sitting on the stairs from the second, third floor all the way to the second floor. And half of the second floor was taken up. And we would relay messages. We would go, we would listen at the door. We'd go, okay. We'd run down, we'd tell everybody. And we'd run downstairs, tell people. And people for two hours just sat and prayed. And people would give testimony to why this guy was innocent for what he was wrongly convicted of. It was amazing. They get to the end, and the judge goes, by the sign of this support, by the testimony received, no, he's not guilty. Ended it right there, but then said, but we will have to lock him up until he's paid for all of his court fees and expenses, and, and it was like a figure around $600. And so all of us as a community left the building we all stood out in the lawn. We got a hat. We passed it around. We walked back in. And we go, paid in full. We took him, <laughs> walked out into the lawn, and cheered. And we prayed, and we sang, and we cheered, and we just went, man, this is what it means to do justice. This is what it means to walk as a community, to be a people of faith, to, to see justice done, to suffer with someone else, to be willing to be with people. That's what I mean by the right kind of cause, right? That it's, you're willing to suffer because of the right kind of cause. But here's the second thing that I want to close with. You're willing to suffer because of the right kind of people. The right kind of people. Here's what I mean. When we tend to read these stories, I think we read them from our American individualistic mindset. And so I read and say, okay, I have to be willing to suffer for the cause. And I go, man, I don't like to suffer. It's really hard. And so I, I kind of back out. I try to find ways to escape it. Because I tend to think of all of these passages through the lens of me, not the lens of us. You see, the Bible is written to be read communally. The Bible is written 
to be lived communally. It's not just about me and my relationship with God. My relationship with God is only good if my relationship with you is. It's something about us and him together, right? That's what the relationship is all about. And so when we understand the New Testament, we understand writings and teachings to be communal rather than individual, it totally changes the way we look at this passage. Because we don't say, what would I do if I was in that situation? We would say, what do we do in that situation? So you even see it here in the text. If you look, it says, we must obey God rather than men. Peter's talking to them by himself. But he doesn't say, I must obey. He says, we must obey. Speaking on behalf of all the apostles that were there. Then he goes on to say this. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Right? Over and over, the, the, the words that are used are this idea of they. If you put me in that same situation without they, the story probably ends up different. If they say to me, hey, listen, Russ, if you keep preaching and teaching what you're preaching, we will beat the crap out of you. We will throw you in jail. I would go like, well, okay. And I'd try to come up with a good Christian reason why to obey what they said. Like, well, we are supposed to submit to our authorities. Or... I would play the stewardship card and say, well, it's not good use of my time to be in jail. I could probably do more for Jesus outside of jail. So I'd come up with these reasons why it wouldn't be most beneficial for me to be in that situation. But what you notice here is that it's a they thing. You know, some of us are trying to reach our neighbor for Jesus by ourselves rather than inviting the community to be a part of it. Some of us are trying to have an influence at work without asking any of our friends to be praying about it. Some of us are trying to battle through a situation in our home or in our life without letting anyone else know about it rather than saying, let's do this together. Right? It's not a me thing, it's a we thing. And so the story goes that these guys got the crap kicked out of them and they went, let's go do it some more. Right? Why? Because they were with the right kind of people. I can tell you from experience the number of times that I have gone through something, the number of times I was willing to do something stupid, the number of times I was willing to do something great when I had other people doing it with me. Not when I had to do it alone. And I think this passage speaks to that idea as well, that we must embrace the communal aspect of our faith, that we worship together, that we serve together, that we witness together, and that we are willing to suffer together for the name of Jesus. Because I think we'll have more Instagram moments in the church if we actually take up the right cause with the right kind of people. Let's pray.